The title of my remarks is Obergefell versus Hodges, More Like Brown Than Loving. So Obergefell is about marriage, and so is Loving versus Virginia, 1967. So many observers analogize the two cases, and in fact, the Supreme Court in Obergefell cited Loving several times. Brown versus Board of Education, 1954, is rather about education, uh, and in fact, um, the court didn't cite it at all. But what I want to suggest that is that in fact, Obergefell, as a judicial opinion, is more like Brown than it is like Loving. Although I will say that Brown and Loving have something in common that they don't share with Obergefell, and that is their aptly named cases. So Brown is about Brown school children. Loving is about Loving. I mean, even the case, the prosecution, right, is Commonwealth of Virginia against Loving. Obergefell, not so much. Um, okay. But uh, for the upper level classes, let me remind you, and for the 1Ls and, and non-law non students, uh, uh, I'll inform you about Brown and Loving if you haven't exposed them before, and then, and then uh, compare them to Obergefell. So in Brown versus Board of Education, 1954, the Supreme Court invalidated school segregation on the basis of race. And the opinion at a general level was not very technical or legalistic, but rather spoke to the public, especially to the South. In a sense, with an open hand trying to appeal to them, uh, still mandating that schools be integrated, but, but nonetheless appealing to their sensibilities, trying to persuade them. In fact, it was written short enough to be included on the front page of a newspaper. And three features of Brown, uh, in particular, contributed to its attempt to appeal to the public. In addition to the fact that Chief Justice Earl Warren worked hard to make it a unanimous decision, even though there were justices, especially Stanley Reed, who thought the decision was mistaken. But a unanimous front will help uh, gain acceptance. So the three features, in particular, I want to talk about is first, there's no blame. The court in Brown does not accuse segregating uh, districts or states of being uh, racist or bigoted or white supremacist. So that was, again, a way to avoid uh, being unduly uh, defensive and offensive. Secondly, the court acknowledged that what it was doing reflected a newer understanding of both race and education. So the court acknowledged that the original understanding of the 14th Amendment may well have supported segregation in schools. Uh, the court also said that schools, though, at the time were um, you know, few and far between. Public education was a new thing. But today, in 1954, we have come to see uh, race in a different way, that segregation is inconsistent with equality. And we come to see education in a different way, the importance of education to children's lives and to their ability to participate in our democracy. So in a sense, they were saying, your understanding does, in fact, reflect how we have thought so in the past. But there's a new understanding we have now. So you're only, in a sense, 
mistaken in light of new understandings. And then third, the court emphasized the consequences, the human and societal cost of segregation, uh, both in expressive terms and tangible terms. So the court said that segregation in schools sends this message of inferiority that harms the hearts and minds of children, so speaking about the harm to children, and that impairs their ability to learn uh, and again to ultimately participate in uh, our society. So um, we're not blaming you, you're not uh, evil. In fact, this is a, a new understanding that we've all come to. We now recognize the toll to children and society from segregation. Thirteen years later, in Loving, the court took a different tone, and a lot happened between 1954 and 1967, namely the civil rights movement, uh, especially with respect to race, significant, uh, but also things like sex and, and war and, and the like, significant social upheaval in America, uh, and including uh, Supreme Court cases that extended Brown to a variety of other contexts, and uh, perhaps most importantly, the crown jewels of the uh, civil rights movement, uh, the Civil Rights Acts of 1964, Fair Housing, uh, well, that was 68, but uh, on the horizon, and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. So by the time you get to Loving, bans on interracial marriage, which was the issue in Loving, were really the last holdout of segregation, and society had clearly both constitutionally legislatively and politically committed itself uh, to racial e equality. So the court in Loving was impatient and indignant. Rather than an open hand, it had a closed fist. And the three features I would contrast with Loving is first, the court does blame. The court accuses the state of Virginia of white supremacy twice uh, in the opinion. Secondly, rather than acknowledging a new understanding, the court said, Bans on interracial marriage violate long-standing principles of racial inequality and the long-understood right of the freedom uh, to marry. And then thirdly, uh, so the court does blame. The court says, you've been wrong uh, not only now, but for a long time. And thirdly, the court does not emphasize the human or societal cost. The court really just points its finger at the state, says you're, again, acting out of white supremacy, and it's much more legalistic. It's like speaking to lawyers and government rather than the public. The court talks about strict scrutiny and how this violates uh, uh, the law. And so, the, again, the, the, the opinion is uh, both pointed, legalistic, and judgmental. Okay, Obergefell. Again, it's like loving, so in that sense it's, uh, it's about marriage, in that sense it's about loving. But the tone reads much more like Brown. It speaks to the public, especially to those states and communities uh, that uh, oppose same-sex marriage. Again, it's not offering to compromise. It's saying you have to accept this mandate. But it tries not to blame. It even goes out of the way to say we have profound respect for people's deeply held beliefs, and we know in no way you know, uh, criticize those. So it's, it's a, we're not blaming you, we're not criticizing you of bigotry. Uh, secondly, it's a new understanding. The court acknowledges that both marriage and sexual orientation historically were quite different, that it, it has historically been limited to opposite-sex couples. 
uh, and that uh, sexual orientation as an identity is something that has not been understood and, uh, and certainly not been protected uh, dating back to the founding and, and before that. But again, we have evolved and gained new insight. Marriage has changed and our understanding of uh, gay identity has changed. So again, we understand where you're coming from, but you need to understand there's a new understanding in town. And then thirdly, again, the court emphasized the human cost. Rather than being kind of legalistic, it talked about the, the people involved, how there were a couple, a lesbian couple from Michigan um, wanting to both be parents, uh, a couple where one was dying and they had to get married in another, another state, but he can't be on the death certificate. And then later in the opinion, the court talks about the expressive and tangible harms to uh, both the couples and their children in refusing to recognize same-sex marriage, not providing them stability, humiliating children in its effect, uh, and ultimately, in fact, undermining uh, the stability of society as a democracy. So like the court in Brown talked about education, the court in uh, Obergefell talked about marriage as a central institution to our democracy. So again, no blame, it's a new understanding um, that we all have to kind of uh, come to uh, terms with uh, because families, especially children and society, are being harmed. Okay, so what are the implications of more like Brown than loving? You know, there's obviously huge historical differences and uh, I don't have a crystal ball, but there may be some lessons that, uh, that are worth considering from, uh, from the points I've made. Uh, first of all, Brown was very controversial, um, so um, there's good points and bad points. So here's the good, bad, and, and perhaps the ugly uh, from the perspective of LGBT rights. The good, both in the short term and the long term, Brown uh, portended significant legal recognition of racial equality. In the short term, although it was about race and education, the court quickly jettisoned those rationales and just applied Brown to order seg uh, desegregation of golf courses, theaters, buses, uh, and the like. So Brown came to stand in short order for simply uh, government cannot segregate, period. And then in the long term, Brown has really become the most popular uh, and politically unassailable judicial opinion in American history. So if Or Obergefell is a sort of Brown-like uh, moment, then that bodes well for LGBT rights. Uh, the bad. Brown represented formal equality, but it was resisted massively, uh, especially in, uh, in the South. Um, many states passed legislation saying we're not gonna obey Brown. Uh, senators in, uh, in Congress passed a manifesto accusing it of judicial uh, lawmaking. Uh, governors said, don't uh, Bay Brown, the, the crowds, we've all seen those grainy photos from Eyes on the Prize, if you haven't, you should, of the crowds of people screaming at uh, black children trying to integrate schools, National Guard blocking them. Uh, so, uh, it, and it took, you know, over a decade before more than the most tokenistic uh, numbers of uh, children attended integrated schools. And even then, it was largely because of the Civil Rights Acts of the mid-1960s that attached significant funding to integration efforts. 
so Brown actually in the short term, including for several years, uh, was resisted uh, uh, quite uh, strenuously. Uh, the ugly, again, from the perspective of gay rights, by ugly I mean there may be ways in which resistance to Obergefell and gay rights generally may be even stronger than resistance to Brown. And again, this is quite speculative. But first of all, where Brown was unanimous, uh, Obergefell was five to four, and each justice wrote quite strong dissents, so that itself does not bode well for uh, the extent to which uh, the Supreme Court is signaling that this is a, a persuasive opinion. Also, even though segregation was you know, deeply embraced by people, the notion of racial equality was added to the Constitution following the Civil War. So there had been kind of a long period of time where people were at least coming to terms with that, what that means. They thought segregation should be acceptable but still understood that, say, outright exclusion, like in jury service or uh, um, uh, voting, at least formally violated the law. They didn't kind of brazenly engage in those kinds of discrimination, although it certainly still went on. So there's a sense in which the constitutional recognition of race as a protected status uh, perhaps contributed to coming to understand that segregation also violated that uh, principle. Uh, whereas with sexual orientation, there just isn't the same understanding that the Equal Protection Clause uh, was intended to protect that. It's, re it's really a new understanding, not just in the particulars, but kind of at a general level. And that also may, may mean it takes longer for people to come to terms uh, with recognizing it as a fundamentally, fundamentally protected status. Also, um, religion... Uh, maybe a distinction. Now, there were significant religious justifications for opposition to uh, uh, racial integ integrated marriage, for example, both in the South and in the North, and religious justifications for segregation more generally. So uh, both actually share that, but the extent to which there's more explicit, albeit ambiguous, but, but still greater textual support in biblical doctrine for opposition to uh, homosexuality than there was to racial equality may suggest that people will have a more difficult time uh, believing that their religious beliefs uh, uh, can coincide with accepting uh, homosexuality and same-sex marriage. And then to the extent that's true, then the constitutional protection of religious liberty uh, may also uh, give greater uh, reason to, uh, to hold on to a belief that, uh, uh, that there need not be uh, uh, a compromise on this issue, at least to the extent of accepting uh, gay rights completely. And then uh, the final difference, this is quite speculative, but I, I think there's truth to it, is sex. Uh, and, and, I, and I mean sex in two ways. So sex in the physical sense, um, the strongest opposition to racial equality centered on interracial sex and marriage. Uh, that was, the inter bans on interracial marriage were the oldest uh, segregationist laws, the most widespread, including in the North, the last to go in loving. Uh, they created the most significant resistance to any kind of racial equality. They would equip, when you want to grant voting rights to blacks, they would say, what do you want your daughter to marry a Negro? 
Uh, even school segregation was based in part on preventing black and, and white uh, school children from meeting. Uh, so the, there's something about sex that hits a kind of visceral nerve in people if they find it, if they believe that it's, that it's wrong. And with race, that related to the aspect of interracial marriage. I think with sexual orientation and same-sex marriage, to many people, it's a pervasive theme that people think of when you think of gay rights or same-sex marriage, they immediately think, oh, that means you're having sex with someone of the same uh, uh, sex. So perhaps resistance to all sorts of gay rights will invoke that repugnance to uh, uh, people's feelings about what's appropriate sexuality that may portend uh, difficulty in achieving uh, uh, equality in many regions. And then the other aspect of sex is, I mean, men and women. There's a complicated, uh, somewhat intangible, but nonetheless real relationship between uh, homophobia and sex roles. And I think sex roles uh, and sexism are deeply ingrained in our society. And so long as we have, as a society, strong beliefs about the appropriate roles of men and women, then there will continue, I think, for many people to, for that to translate into opposition to people who deviate from that role, including uh, being uh, romantically interested in someone of the same sex. So there may be stronger resistance for a variety of reasons, but I want to end on an optimistic uh, uh, note. Uh, one lesson from Brown is the limited ability of courts to enforce significant social and legal reform. It really took political activism and uh, legislation. So uh, while that's cautionary, there was success because of the civil rights movement in achieving uh, legislative reform. So one can be optimistic with the recognition that it requires activism. In favor of gay rights, people should not rest on their laurels and assume that the courts now are taking care of things. Uh, we have to continue to engage in political activism to get legal protections, such as in the workplace, and also social activisms. That is, ultimately, uh, equality is achieved when people come to recognize the commonality between people. So uh, engaging with people to achieve social acceptance uh, is also possible, but, uh, but again requires uh, continued vigilance. So with that, uh, I thank you, and uh, I look forward to Professor Laycock's remarks. There were 10 or so consolidated cases in the marriage decisions, and one of the plaintiffs was named Love. We could have had Loving versus Virginia and Love versus Brashear, but the plaintiff's lawyers either had no sense of romance or no coordination. And the, so the first case filed, which becomes the case caption, was Obergefell. Um, the New York Times reported that he pronounces it Obergefell, and we all said that for a while, but I've actually heard him say it on YouTube, and it's Obergefell. Um, <clears throat> so the title of this program was about the future, and that's always a dangerous thing to talk about. Uh, you know, I think in the long run, uh, the future of gay rights is continued favorable shifts in public opinion and, and more and more uh, support. 
you see that in the polling trend line. You see it in the age distribution of the polling data. Uh, I don't think that in 2055 we will still be fighting about marriage equality in the way we're fighting about abortion 40 years after Roe. And, and the reason for that, I think, is not just the trend in the polling data. It's that abortion has, to the pro-life side, and to some extent even to regretful folks on the pro-choice side, a very visible, identifiable victim. Marriage equality has no victims. Uh, and, and as it turns out that there are no uh, harmful effects in, in, in the larger society, um, you know, I think the opposition will fade away. But it's going to take a substantial period of time. And in the, in the near and medium term, I think we're looking at gridlock. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, the marriage decision uh, interprets the Constitution. The Constitution governs state actions, so the people bound by it are state officials. Um, states have to recognize marriage and issue marriage licenses. Rowan County, Kentucky has to recognize marriage and issue marriage licenses. Um, but nothing in Obergefell regulates the private sector. That is left to civil rights laws that protect against sexual orientation discrimination. Those laws already exist in blue states, in not quite half the states. Um, they have exemptions for religious nonprofits. Uh, I th those exemptions are starting to come under some attack, but I think they're basically stable. I think legislative inertia will protect them. I think it would be very foolish for the gay rights side to try to repeal them. Um, because one of the arguments against any future compromise, uh, one of the arguments on the religious side, about why we can't tolerate gay marriage even with religious exemptions, why we can't have a sexual orientation civil rights law even with religious exemptions, is that it's just a transition. They'll repeal the exemptions on us. And you do that in one blue state and you feel that argument in all the red and purple states where the real, uh, where the real debate is. So in, so in the blue states, the gay rights side is essentially one. Um, We've got gridlock in Congress and gridlock in the red states. Uh, neither side can pass a bill without compromise, and neither side is willing to compromise. Never forget that in the Senate of the United States, it takes 60 votes to blow your nose. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> you know, the Democrats very briefly had 60 votes after the 2008 election until Ted Kennedy died. Uh, it had been a long time before that since either side had 60 votes. Uh, if you want to pass a bill, you've got to, uh, you've got to compromise. There are bills pending in Congress. The gay rights side has issued the Equality Act. Um, the religious side has issued the First Amendment, has introduced the First Amendment Defense Act. There's time at the end, I'll say a little bit about those bills, but they are both overreaching, conceding nothing to the other side, obviously unpassable. Um, you know, they are, they are the work of the intransigent absolutist on each side of this divide. Um, the way forward, if there is a way forward, uh, is indicated by the Utah Compromise. Uh, Utah is the reddest state in the country. It routinely gives the highest percentage vote to Republican presidential candidates. It has a statewide gay rights bill uh, that covers employment and housing, um, and, and it has has religious exemptions, and, and more so than in most states, it has uh, coverage limits. So it uh, doesn't apply to employers with fewer than 15 employees. That's the same limit as in the federal law. Um, 
in most states, uh, the civil rights laws kick in at five employees or three employees or in Michigan at one employee. Um, so, so it, you know, it's limited in important ways, and it did not do public accommodations. It only did employment and housing. Um, but in the reddest state in the union, we have substantial protections uh, for, uh, for gays and lesbians and transgender uh, with significant religious exemptions. Uh, it was possible because, in part because on the conservative side, the leadership of the Mormon church, which could speak for most religious conservatives, uh, by the work of several key legislatures, legislators, um, and in particular by a close personal relationship between a gay legislator and a member of the Republican uh, leadership. And it was immediately denounced by both sides. It's only for Utah, you can't do it anywhere else. Um, and you know, that kind of intransigence, I think, means there will be no gay rights bill at the federal level for years and years. Uh, and no gay rights protection in most red states uh, for years and years. The only way to enact it is with significant protections for religious liberty, especially for religious nonprofits, uh, and perhaps also for very small businesses in the, in the wedding industry. Um, <clears throat> as, as Kim said, there was massive resistance to uh, the school desegregation decisions. There's not been massive resistance to Obergefell. Um, there's resistance, uh, but when you think about it, it's a handful of cases, right? It's one crazy county clerk in Kentucky um, and a handful of, uh, of cases about wedding vendors. Um, one in New Mexico, uh, one in Colorado, one in Oregon, one in Washington. Uh, that's all the decisions. And you know, there are press accounts and activist organization accounts of a handful more scattered around the country. Uh, but we're not, seeing, uh, we're not seeing massive resistance. We're seeing quite scattered resistance. And that's quite remarkable given that the religious views of churches adhered to by a majority of the population just became illegal, right? Um, there's a clear majority now in polling data in support of of uh, marriage equality, uh, but religious teaching changes much more slowly. Uh, we have no precedent in the country for trying to outlaw the religious teachings of the majority churches, but we're trying to do it with emergency contraception and with marriage equality. And so, of course, we should expect resistance, and the, the remarkable thing is that there's been so little. I want to talk a little bit about the background of this fight and how the two sides talk past each other. Um, if we understand each other better, compromise may become more conceivable. Um, <clears throat> neither side has much understanding of the other, but gays and lesbians and religious conservatives make essentially parallel claims on the larger society. They each say some aspects of human identity are so fundamental, so important, the state should leave them alone, and only the most essential regulation should be allowed to interfere. Um, sexual orientation is that fundamental to human identity. And for serious believers, religious faith is that fundamental to human identity. Um, and these identities are routinely manifested in conduct. <clears throat> you sometimes hear folks on the conservative side say, we don't care about your sexual orientation, it's only your sexual conduct. If you'd be celibate for the rest of your life, we wouldn't have any problems. Well, that's obviously ridiculous. Uh, but it is equally ridiculous to say to serious religious believers, you can believe whatever you want, you just can't act on it. Right? Uh, 
you can believe God says whatever you think he says, but you have to flout what he said because, uh, because the law says so. Both sides seek to live out their identity in actual conduct. Both sides seek to live out their identity in public. You know, gays and lesbians came out of the closet, um, and religious conservatives don't want to be forced into the closet. Uh, and this is politically relevant. It's also doctrinally relevant to the Equal Protection Clause and to uh, judicial review under other clauses. Each side is viewed as evil by a substantial fraction of the population. You know, religious conservatives see gays and lesbians as engaged in sinful, immoral, disordered behavior. Um, religious cons uh, gays and lesbians often see religious conservatives as a bunch of hateful bigots. Um, and so both sides are vulnerable to hostile and irrational legislation in any jurisdiction where the other side uh, can assemble a majority. Uh, the Supreme Court has invalidated a lot of that legislation. Um, <clears throat> but the political forces that gave rise to that legislation uh, are still there and uh, make compromise difficult and give rise to the kind of gridlock we're now seeing in Congress uh, and in red states. Uh, the two sides have very different understandings of marriage and therefore very different understandings of what they're arguing about. And I don't just mean one side thinks it's only opposite sex couples and the other side thinks it's, uh, it's any couple. Uh, the disagreement is actually deeper than that. Um, marriage is a legal relationship. Civil marriage, legal marriage is mostly about financial benefits and obligations. Uh, nothing terribly romantic about it. Um, it's a deeply personal human relationship. Um, and for many people, it's a religious relationship. Uh, which of those relationships is primary? Way back at the near the beginning of this debate in 2004, uh, there was a survey, I never saw this question replicated. People who thought the legal relationship was primary supported same-sex marriage by modest majorities as early as 2004. And people who thought the religious relationship was primary overwhelmingly opposed uh, same-sex marriage. Um, and for religious conservatives, the religious relationship is primary. Marriage is inherently a religious relationship. Uh, the legal relationship rests on that foundation. It's a mere implementation of the religious relationship. That's obviously not the law, but that's their view of the matter. Um, and therefore, a wedding is inherently a religious event. Even if the couple thinks it's a secular event and they're getting married by a judge, it is a religious event creating a religious ceremony for many religious conservatives. And that disagreement frames the issue about religious liberty exemptions to gay rights laws. Very few religious conservatives refuse to serve gays or offer any religious justification for refusing to serve gays. There's one reported case ever, it's 30 years ago, an employer refused to hire gays, offered a religious reason, lost under the compelling interest standard. The cases actually arise mostly involve weddings, or they involve other things very closely related to the marriage or the sexual relationship. Um, so we have people who refuse to do gay weddings because they understand the wedding to be a religious event and an event that is religiously prohibited by their understanding uh, of God's will. Uh, the Washington florist uh, who is lost before in a state trial court and is appealing had searched for a gay customer for years 
She knew the flowers were for his same-sex partner. That was fine with her. That was none of her business. So when he asked her to do his wedding, that she said she couldn't because the wedding, in her understanding, is a religious event. Um, and the job of wedding vendors is to help make the wedding the best, the most memorable, the most perfect wedding it can be. They are promoting it. They are promoting uh, the marriage that the wedding creates and celebrates. Um, compare it to the gay-friendly baker in Colorado. Some conservative religious activists came in and asked him to make a cake with uh, slogans on top opposing gay marriage and gay sex, and he refused. Both sides leapt into action explaining why their baker should have his conscience protected, but the other side's baker should not have his conscience protected. And you can even make doctrinal arguments. The guy who wouldn't, prevent, wouldn't uh, create the anti-gay cake probably wasn't discriminating on the basis of a protected category. Um, <clears throat> but the principle is the same, right? Should, should individuals running their own small business be forced uh, to provide services that violate their conscience. Um, and the way these cases have so far come out in the Colorado legal system is um, the guy who was asked to create the anti-gay slogans uh, was held not to have violated anything. Um, the Christian baker who wouldn't do uh, a cake for a same-sex wedding uh, has so far lost in the Colorado Court of Appeals uh, because they said there's really no message in delivering a cake to a wedding. You're not celebrating anything, and, and if you are, it's not you talking, it's the couple talking. Um, maybe the difference between these two cases, if you say something explicit in frosting on top of the cake, you're protected, but if you just do a cake with a lot of decoration, you're not protected. Um, <clears throat> the distinction doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that's where we are in blue and purple states, and the the case law in Colorado is actually pretty hostile uh, to religious liberty. And I suppose that's a point I should have noted at the beginning. All of these cases are about state law. The federal constitution is playing essentially uh, no role because of a decision called Employment Division versus Smith in, in 1990 uh, that limits the scope of the federal free exercise clause. So these are about state constitutions, state religious freedom restoration acts, and specific exemptions in state um, gay rights laws. Um, all the cases, nearly all the cases have been about weddings, but there are a handful of other contexts. Marriage and relationship counselors. If you're gay and you and your partner are having problems, the last thing in the world you want is to be counseled by a Christian conservative who thinks your whole relationship is an affront to God. Um, but that doesn't prevent people from filing lawsuits uh, demanding that every counselor be available to every potential couple. Those cases are about forcing religious conservatives out of the helping professions. They're not actually about getting counseling for anybody. Um, there's, uh, there's one case in California about assisted reproduction. Um, a, a doctor who you know, would not uh, assist with um, in vitro fertilization for a partner in a, in a lesbian relationship. Um, but these are all cases very close to the marriage itself or to the sexual part of the relationship. Uh, no one is saying, I won't serve gays in my restaurant. Um, I, I won't hire gays at all. 
There are people who say that they're not offering religious justifications. We simply do not see those cases. Now, one reason we don't see those cases is the people who might do that are disproportionately in red states, and red states don't have gay rights laws. Uh, but some of the blue cities in red states have gay rights laws. Um, you know, the, there are a variety of reasons why we're not seeing it, but one of the most important reasons is there's no religious teaching to support that. That's not what the conservative side is saying. They're saying, I can't do the wedding. I can't do uh, the sexual part of the relationship. Um, so the way to get uh, gay rights laws in red states or in Congress uh, is to exempt religious nonprofits and probably to exempt very small businesses in religiously sensitive context. Um, but no exemption for larger businesses, no exemption for local monopolists where no other one, no one else is available to provide, to provide the services. Uh, that's the path forward, but there's no way, no way to get there. So if you look at the pending bills in Congress, and there's similar bills being introduced in state legislatures around the country. Um, the gay rights side has introduced the Equality Act. Um, the religious conservative side has introduced the First Amendment Defense Act. Um, the First Amendment Defense Act backed off a little bit after the initial version was widely denounced in the press. Um, I've been part of a group of academics uh, talking to the sponsors and some of the key supporters uh, trying to get them to adopt a bill that could conceivably, uh, produce a bill that can conceivably be defended in public opinion. We haven't had much success. The current version still protects for-profit businesses with no size limit so long as they are uh, not publicly traded. Uh, it protects secular objectors as well as religious objectors. And this is an area where secular objections are very hard to distinguish from just plain old uh, homophobia. Um, they haven't backed off nearly far enough. That bill will go uh, nowhere. Um, the gay rights side has introduced the Equality Act and it really plows the corners of the field. It adds sex, sexual orientation and uh, gender identity uh, to essentially every federal civil rights law. Um, employment, housing, um, credit, a uh, couple others. Um, <clears throat> it applies to the churches. Uh, the church itself is covered if it has 15 employees. Uh, it applies to religious nonprofits. Uh, there are no exemptions of any kind. It expressly precludes any defense under the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act. Um, that's not going to go anywhere either. That cannot possibly be enacted. So, you know, I think we have um, two choices going forward. We're going to have a long period of gridlock in which nothing happens, in which gays are protected against discrimination in blue states, but unprotected in red and most purple states. Um, or we can have some sensible compromises from both sides that produce gay rights bills with religious exemptions. Um, and the problem is, however many people decide that sort of a compromise would be a good thing, the activist organizations on both sides are led by absolutists. They're led by intransigence. Um, so I think what we're really looking at is a long period, 10, 20 years at least, before we see uh, such a dramatic change in public opinion that gay rights laws can be enacted in red states. Uh, without these kinds of compromises. I hope I'm wrong, uh, but that's where I think we are. I think both of us would be happy to take questions and comments. <clears throat>